0: Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Hello, everybody. I'm Denise. And I'm Zelda. How are you all doing today? (laughs) And we're here with Murderous Roots, where we get into the family trees of some gnarly killers. (laughs) And, I mean, seriously,
1: some folks you look at and you go, how did they ever turn to the life of crime? But
0: it won't be today's guy. No, no, no. No. I have to admit, I am kind of confused how this particular family... And this particular line of the Barrows went that way. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into more of that later because today we are covering Clyde Chestnut Barrow. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. So let, let me tell you a little bit. Let me tell you a little bit. Let me tell you a
1: story. I'm going to just wrap the story up. So <laughs> Clyde Chestnut Barrow, who incidentally, occasionally, just jokingly referred to my middle name is Champion. Um, yeah. he was born on March fourth, nineteen o nine, and he shares a birthday with one of my brothers. This is something that is not at all significant, but I found it cool. Oh, I just thought maybe there was a connection yeah, there. i I just wondered, but no, although considering <laughs> my brother, hmm, mm-hmm. maybe he was like reborn, but he was born into a poor farming family in Ellis County, Texas, just southeast of Dallas. Mm-hmm. So now we have to remember, neither Clyde nor Bonnie were large people. She was hovering around five feet tall, 90 pounds soaking wet. He was like 5'5", five 5'7", five, five you know, he was like tiny guy, 14 inch neck, if this tells you anything. Oh, wow. That is. Yeah. Small. Yeah. They, they got that from the shirt that he died in. So I would lean more towards 5'5". Five five yeah, he was he was a tiny fellow. And, you know, he and as a boy, he was kind of small and unassuming. And he had ambitions of becoming a musician, I just think that's so interesting that both Bonnie and Clyde had this artistic side to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be kind of what bonded them, honestly. Um, but he stuck around in school to about 16. Um I thought it was interesting, you know, his family, his brother-in-law taught him how to play the saxophone, and he also played the guitar, and in one of the books, Bonnie and Clyde's Hideout, it said he brought a little happiness into the lives of others sentenced to poverty when he'd strum the guitar around the fire at camps the couple stayed at while on the run. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? When one of their safe houses was raided, Clyde's guitar was left behind, and he asked his mom, who we'll probably talk a lot more about later, to try and get it back to him. She wasn't able to do that, but he did manage to hold on to a saxophone. And it was in the car along with sheet music when he and Bonnie were killed. So Barrow was first arrested in 1926 at the age of 17 after running when police confronted him over a rental car he had failed to
0: return on time. (laughs) Yeah, of all the things, right? Wait, (laughs) you're being chased because you hadn't returned a car? I guess they must have returned reported as stolen i or assume so and point. i don't
1: think it was like the same day <laughs> i think it was right. a little bit later um,
0: okay. his
1: second arrest was with his brother buck who is already you know dabbling in the criminal elements as we say um for possession of stolen turkeys <laughs> is that how you want to go down boy is that how you want to go down no. so he did actually have some legitimate jobs like you know 1927 1929 but he also cracked safes robbed stores and stole cars which seems to be like the thing for young men to do like even today Yeah, he really loved cars he really loved cars so as we already know he met 19 year old bonnie through a mutual friend in january 1930 and of course we also know that romance was interrupted when barrow was arrested and convicted of auto theft so, we touched on, you know, because their lives are so parallel from this point forward, we're, mm-hmm. we touched on a lot of this back when we talked about Bonnie, but I'm kind right. of delving into some of the things that affected him more personally and particularly than the both of them. Right. So, Clyde was sent to Easton Prison Farm in April 1930 at the age of 21. He escaped from the prison farm shortly after his incarceration using a weapon that Bonnie had smuggled to him. But then he was recaptured pretty quick and sent back to prison. So that's where things like went to hell. Let's be honest. Um, So Eastham was one of the worst of the worst prisons at the time. And they weren't really known for rehabilitation at the time. It was literally a way to dump people. They barely got fed. It was incredibly violent. And his experience at easter was so bad, he never talked to anyone about it, never even Bonnie. But we mm-hmm. do know some of the things that happened to him. So, an inmate known as Big Ed Crowder beat him and raped him repeatedly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so one day, Clyde was like, fuck this noise. And he got Big Ed alone in a bathroom and beat him to death with a lead pipe. Honestly, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to happen. I was about to say, I think it sounded like Big Ed deserves yeah, that. Yeah, I, I don't feel bad for Big Ed at all. Um, an mm-hmm. inmate who was already serving life must have felt bad for Clyde because he took the rap for it. So it didn't affect Clyde being able to actually get out of prison. And one good friend said cl- that prison itself had changed Clyde from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake, which being raped repeatedly will do to you. So I'm just like, oh, yeah. holy shit. And back then, it's not like there was therapy it was literally no. like you were blamed for being a victim. So I'm just like...
0: And therapy was literally just for the wealthy.
1: Right. Right. And it usually entailed like
0: surgery or electroshock. So I mean, yeah. it's like... And it was usually in bigger... I mean, not that Dallas wasn't a big city. It but wasn't that big back like, then. Yeah. Yeah. But it was more like a New York City type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But... One must avenge what cannot be defended. So he started formulating a plan even before he got out. He was going to start a gang, steal money, guns, and then come back and kill all the guards. That was his ultimate plan. But mm-hmm. while he was in there, um, he, you know, because life was hard. And it was even harder if he had to work in the fields. So he worked out with either an inmate, he might have done it himself. He's kind of like, I don't know that he actually did that. Probably was another inmate. To chop off two of his toes in january 1932 Mm -hmm. so that he would be not have to go out to the fields this permanently disabled him and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life and sadly had he waited just six more days he could have kept his toes yeah because he was set free well you know without his knowledge barrow's mom had successfully petitioned for his release basically doing the whole crying i'm a widow and she wasn't even a widow just pointing that out <laughs> and just told everybody she was and she needed her son home so he was paroled on february 2nd 1932 angry an angry angry man his sister marie said something awful sure must have happened to him in prison because he wasn't the same person when he got out so then he gets out of Eastham, and he's like People suck. People are garbage. Which, hello, yes. After that experience, yeah. one would think that. So then he started robbing grocery stores and gas stations, and he was famous for ten or so. He was famous for bank robberies, but he, you know, went to like ten or so, attributing both him and the Barrow Gang that he right. and Bonnie had started. The reality was they lived hand to mouth. Um, And one of the reasons they had to keep holding up places was they never got a whole lot of money out of it. Encyclopedia Britannica says they never took more than $1,500. They were so desperate for cash, sometimes they would break into vending machines for food money. And a little aside, his favorite weapon was the M1918 Browning Automatic Rifle. According to John Neal Phillips, Barrow's goal in life was not to gain fame or fortune from robbing banks, but to seek revenge against the Texas prison system for the abuses he suffered while serving time. So we talked a little bit about the Barrow gang and how his brother Buck was part of it. and Various other people were part of it. And, you know, as their crime spree continued, Clyde, Bonnie, Buck and Blanche, who was Buck's wife, we talked about who later turned away from crime they were constantly pursued by law enforcement in july 1933 police officers found them in platte city missouri they had another shootout buck was seriously wounded when police caught up with them several days later bonnie and clyde escaped along with joe's but buck and blanche surrendered he died of his wounds she was sentenced to 10 years in prison she got out a little early Mm -hmm. for good behavior and then another person who was with them was captured by authorities like later in november well, they robbed fewer than 15 banks during their 21-month crime spree. But since it was the Great Depression, things didn't always go as planned. Oh, yeah. One of the gang attempted to rob the Ponder State Bank in Texas, only to be told that it had failed a week earlier and there was no money to steal. Oh, jeez. I know, right? Clyde apparently thought this was hilarious when he was told. So, honestly, they knew there would be less chance of being caught if they robbed small-town restaurants, grocery stores, gas stations. So, those were actually the places they normally hit. And in the middle of the Depression, that meant stealing from people who were also struggling to get by. Yeah,
0: so this whole thing about them being Robin Hood and giving to the poor kind of loses its...
1: Yeah, exactly. And the glamour of bank robbing. I'm like, there was. they didn't really rob banks. Successfully, Not that many, at least. So one of the, the things that, you know, the fact that they didn't really kill everyone they came in contact with was one of the reasons the public loved Bonnie and Clyde. You know, they, they tended to prefer just to, like, kidnap people, ride around with them and dump them off in strange places, <laughs> including police. They did this to police officers, too. Mm-hmm. Well, until it didn't. So two policemen came up to their car one morning. For one of the cops, it was his first day on the job, and he was about to get married. So oh, yeah. heartstrings, right? so Clyde was like hey let's just kidnap them but what he yelled was let's take them it was misunderstood by another gang member Henry Methvin and he started shooting so the cops were killed Bonnie apparently got out of the car and tried to help the cops as they lay dying and then they were like Mm -hmm. shit we got to get out of here and so then they they scattered and of course after that the public opinion shifted so then in let's see okay, when did this actually happen but, it, okay, in January 1934, Clyde helped orchestrate an Eastham jailbreak for a former accomplice. A prison guard was killed in the process, with Clyde escaping with his friend and several other inmates. Among the escapees was a convict named Henry Methvin, the same guy who shot the two cops. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, Clyde didn't actually shoot the cops. He shot at the cops. He didn't shoot the cops themselves. It was all Henry who mm-hmm. killed them. With a posse that included the Texas Ranger Captain Frank Hammer in pursuit, Methvin and Clyde killed the two highway patrolmen we talked about. So then after he, they killed the two police officers, Methvin mm-hmm. killed the constable just days later in Commerce, Oklahoma. And so that's the point at which, like, shit was coming down on their heads. Right. So eventually, Bunny and Clyde sought refuge at the Methvin family farm in Bienville Parish, Louisiana. But of course, Hammer and the posse heard of their la- whereabouts... And Methvin's father betrayed the famous outlaws in exchange for amnesty for his son. So on May 23rd, 1934, Bonnie and Clyde were driving down a Louisiana back road when they saw Methvin's father standing by his broken down truck. There are fuzzy details around this because the police Mm -hmm. gave alternate accounts as time went on and who was one account has him handcuffed to a tree by the side and only his car was there. Um, However, the, the important thing is, is that the police were lying in wait, and when Bonnie and Clyde stopped to help Methvin, the police opened fire, and the duo were killed in a hail of bullets. So historians and writers have questioned whether Hammer should have given the order to fire without warning prior to the car's arrival. In the years after, Prentice Oakley, who was one of the officers, was the only person to publicly re- express regret for his actions. And then, okay, to add insult to injury, after, like, the car's all shot up, Bonnie and Clyde are dead as doornails. Mm-hmm. The officers took and kept for themselves stolen guns, personal items, mm-hmm. the saxophone. And when the Parker family asked for them back, Hammer's like, hell no, those are ours now. These items were also later sold as souvenirs. Yeah. Now, what happened to the car, you ask? I can see the question in your eyes. <laughs> so... The history of the car, before we get to the point where it got shot up, Mm -hmm. in early 1934, they had stolen a V8 Ford and drove it around the Midwest, robbing and killing people. So they'd had it for a little while, a few months, you know? Right. And after they were killed, the owner that they stole it from back in Illinois (laughs) was like, I want my car back. And they were like, you can't have your car back. And she's like, hell yeah, I can have my car back. And I got to tell you, the bullet holes and the blood were just the tiniest problems for this owner. Right. Right. Because when she went to reclaim it, they were told you got to pay $15,000 if you want your car back what yes because the sheriff henderson jordan wanted to keep the car to sell it as you know like an oddity kind of thing you know and make money off of it
0: they wanted to make money off of. oh my yeah yeah
1: and so ruth warren my girl was like uh no fuck that and so she sued them (laughs) good because that's bs total right there just texas the con i do what my i do what i want well she said hell no so she won the case she got her car back and it literally was like, I mean, they just shipped it exactly as it was, right? Because they had towed mm-hmm. it from the place where they were shot with the body still in it right. to the next town.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is where
1: they had to, like, fight off crowds who were trying to, like, take body
0: parts, you know? I've seen the pictures. Yeah. I mean, they
1: swarmed Yeah. The they car. swarmed the car. I mean, it was, it's, people are trash, right, sometimes? Right. And so, um, Anyway, from that point on, it was an instant attraction. It toured carnivals, amusement parks, flea markets, state fairs. For a time, it was in the Museum of Antique Autos in Princeton, Massachusetts. In the 1970s, it was at a Nevada racetrack where people could sit in it for a dollar. And they did because people are garbage. A decade later, it was in a Las Vegas car museum. A decade after that, it was in a casino near the California of Nevada State Line. It was then moved to a different casino on the other side of the freeway. Then it went on tour to other casinos in Iowa, Missouri, Northern Nevada. Currently, it is on display at Whiskey Pete's Casino in Prim, Nevada. (laughs) I mean, I could see wanting to see it, but getting inside of it. I'm just like, you know... Okay, so what excites me about the crimes that we uncover, not uncover, but that we examine.
0: (laughs) Yeah. These are not
1: our crimes. um, No. Is that I like seeing how were they caught? What were they doing? I like the kind of like the, the solving of the mystery parts of it. Right. I don't like the gore. I don't like mm-hmm. the bloody pictures or any of that. Like, in fact, when we did the Dahlia one, I was like trying to not look at the pictures because the black Dahlia oh, ones understand. were just gruesome. And they took a lot of gruesome pictures of the black Dahlia. And I was just like, so the idea, the idea of we have a car in which people were murdered in a fashion that really is not very becoming to the police. Let's face it. No. And I want to go sit in it and have my picture taken. I'm like, Uh, okay maybe a replica i could see but the actual car that is now haunted by demons no no i want nothing to do with that yeah so yeah so anyway that's that's clyde barrow that's what i got (laughs) he was a a two-bit criminal murderer guy who probably would have stayed two-bit not killing anybody had he not been raped repeatedly in prison
0: yeah. Now, what our listeners might not know is that when I prepare for podcast, I do most I usually do it on um, note cards because I found that's what works best for me. I can flip through them quickly. I can shuffle them to how I want them. Mm-hmm. So just to give you an idea how much I have on Clyde, <gasps> I have a huge stack of note cards and most of this is his siblings.
1: <laughs> that's at least an inch tall, listeners.
0: Oh, it's it's good. To, yeah. Good inch. So it's a lot of cards. So we're going to, my, my, my debate with myself is where do we start on his tree? So I decide we're going to start with his parents, work our ways back like we did with Bonnie. And then we'll talk about his siblings because that's a whole other mess.
1: Do we at least have a postmaster in there somewhere to redeem the family?
0: No. Again, no postmaster. Uh, We're on a drought with that. This is
1: why they were such a messed up family. Well, uh, I,
0: I think there's a little <laughs> bit more to it than that, but...
1: Well, tell <laughs> start... us about us, Denise. I'm excited.
0: <laughs> well, Clyde's father was Henry Basil Barrow, and he was born in 1874 in Alabama. By 1880, his family had moved to Texas. And then on December 8th, 1892, in Nacogdoches, Texas, he married local girl, Kumi Talitha Walker.
1: Ah, I would love that name, t- Kumi. That's lovely. Yeah.
0: She was just 10 months his junior, so they were the same age. No
1: way. That's so weird. I know. They were both 18. Huh. And age appropriate. That's lovely. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? It's not going to be that way the rest of this. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> there, there'll, there'll be moments where it is, but not all, the whole thing. As has been told about Clyde's family, they were sharecroppers. And, the, you know, this is like one of those common stories everybody knows is that he came from a family of sharecroppers. And that's true. They were poor and uneducated. In fact, in 1900, Henry, at the age of 26, was unable to read or write. No. He never went to school. However, Kumi could do both. The reason becomes clear in the 1940 census when it asked what the highest grade level they had achieved in school. Henry's answer was zero.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Kumi finished sixth grade. So Wow. Thank God he married a woman who could read and write. Yes. I mean, I'm sure that helped, but they did not come from a place. He did not grow up educated at all. He grew up in a situation where he got up with the rest of his family and they went out and they tended the fields. And wow. that could not have been an easy life. By 1918, Henry and Kumi had all seven of their children. It was at this time that a drought hit in Texas where they were living, likely resulting in zero, almost zero harvest. After struggling for a couple more years, Henry moved his family to Cement City in Dallas, which is now West Dallas. it's so funny because my parents were here recently. I mentioned West Dallas and my dad goes, oh, so almost to Fort Worth. I go, no, not that far over. (laughs) Literally just a little to the west of downtown.
1: I just love how you say Cement City instead of Cement City. Oh, (laughs) I'm
0: I'm becoming a local Texan all of a sudden. Okay. (laughs) So, Henry was essentially starting over at the age of 47. At first, the family didn't have enough to live on, even in a home. So, they all lived in tents. And they lived in an area under a viaduct called the Bog. Wow. And it was called the Bog because it was wet and kind of swampy in some areas. Oh, my gosh. And they lived there for five years. Wow. So, I mean, this family wasn't just poor. They were... Yeah, yeah, that was, that is extreme poverty. Yeah. Henry spent this, this five years working and saving money. It's believed he was selling goods from a wagon and saved the money from it. Around 1926, Henry bought the family a home. Soon after that, they moved in, and Henry added a front part to the house, what would become the Star Service Station. Um, it was a store, and what they called petro filling station which we call a gas station now Um, and they would operate that until around 1942 okay but as you said that's when 1926 is the first time Clyde got arrested so they're finally getting out of that deep poverty but the effects of it have already taken root Uh with the kids apparently the building still is there by the way sitting at 1221 Singleton Boulevard in Dallas. Locals call it Barrow Filling Station.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Is it still, like, in service, or is it just there?
0: No, I don't think it's in service. I think it's just there. Okay. Wow, so. that's wild. Now, I got to tell you, what I find most interesting in this case, and we were talking about it a little bit before we started to record, is that after the death of Buck and Clyde, all the attention went on to Kumi, and barely a word was said about Henry. And not only that, Henry was not charged in the harboring trial at all. Interesting. Only Kumi.
1: That is interesting.
0: And Kumi was sentenced to thirty days in jail in March nineteen thirty-five. So why did Henry get a pass? Mm-hmm. Now I get. Kumi was involved. I mean, she was all about protecting her her kids. Mm-hmm. But, would Henry have been in the same position where he could have told the police that they were coming to visit? Yeah, that's really interesting. Seems a little sexist to me, but there you go.
1: Well, you know, we've already talked about how people are garbage, so.
0: Well, yeah, and it's always easier to blame the mother for Oh, yeah, moms
1: get blamed for everything.
0: Yeah. But the after effects of Clyde and Buck lasted well after 1934 for Kumi and Henry. On March 31st, 1936, Mr. and Mrs. Leroy Pinnell and Raymond Pinnell fought with Henry at his gas station. An argument over two gallons of gas, resulting in Henry being stabbed. Oh my
1: God.
0: Mm -hmm. Even Marie got injured by flying glass after a chair went through a car window in that incident.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. A few months later in August, a fire destroyed the home and the filling station. So Henry rebuilt. Then on September 5th, 1938, it was reported that Kumi and a nephew were shot In front of the filling station, Kumi was shot in the face and shoulder, her nephew Lewis in the back the night before. I mean, it was a drive by. The perpetrator was reported to be Baldy Watley, who had an argument with LC, their son. Wow. Watley was a former member of the Barrow Gang. Oh, that's
1: right. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, mm-hmm. did you know that on Monday, March 2nd, 2020, the Landmark Commission voted to begin the initiation process to designate the Clyde Barrow Family Home and Filling Station at 1221 Singleton Boulevard as an official City of Dallas landmark?
0: Wow. I did not know that.
1: Hmm, maybe that'll keep it from falling apart because it's in some bad condition now.
0: Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. And, and I think it's kind of cool because... I mean the, what Henry went through To build it and just you know mm-hmm. It's just that that's amazing Well
1: and if you think about it, I mean Henry of all Of them should mm-hmm. have been a criminal I mean honestly You right. grew up in that kind of you know and you're dealing with this Extreme poverty it doesn't take much Even that much to have people Turn right. to a life of crime and the fact he was like Hell no we're building this thing up Brick by brick we're gonna have yeah. a business And he probably had dreams of passing it Along to his kids and that kind of thing And
0: those got crushed. And And his kids worked there. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Um, This is from the Austin American Statesman on September 5th, 1938. Man is wounded by shotgun blast. Mrs. Henry Barrow, 65, mother of the Barrow Boys, Southwestern Desperados, and Louis Francis, 32, her nephew, were shot and wounded as they sat in front of the Barrow Filling Station here Mm -hmm. Sunday night. The shooting occurred shortly after Elsie Barrow... Released Sunday from Huntsville Penitentiary, and S.J. Baldy Watley engaged in a fight at the scene. Mrs. Barrow was shot in the face and shoulder, and Francis in the back. So I, I was feeling like I got grabbed the wrong article, but maybe. Were I you didn't.
1: T- going to talk about him being shot or her being shot?
0: Yeah, no, that's right. I, I just heard that I got more details on a different article, and hold on. And that is not the article that I was thinking of. Another article ended up coming out is that kumi was actually sleeping she wasn't sitting out in the front which that article makes it seem like when the, the shots were done Wow! yeah so that's why i was trying to find just a second ago um <laughs> to explain that but i can't so but wait there's more oh my because god Because on october 7th Four sticks of dynamite bound together with wire were tossed into the station at 4.30 a.m.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. Luckily, the fuse was defective.
1: Oh, my gosh. And they believe
0: Watley was behind that as well.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. Watley was sentenced to 12 years for the shooting. Wow. Yeah. Even though everything that happened with Bonnie and Clyde was over, it, it was still affecting them in their everyday life um kumi died four years later at age 67 on august 14, 1942 of acute
1: pancreatitis <gasps> Ooh, that's painful mm-hmm.
0: i found the following notice in the honolulu star bulletin on august 15, 1942 barrow convict's mother is buried mrs kumi barrow mother of the late clyde and buck barrow as well as three other men now in prison died here friday but only one of her prisoner children was able to attend today's funeral. Jack Barrow, serving 99 years for murder, was granted a furlough from prison to attend. Of her seven children, only two are without prison records.
1: Oh my God!
0: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> lit- I know. I just, just the implications of the way it was written. Yeah. <laughs> just makes you go. Yeah. Henry Whoa. lived another. 15 years, passing at the age of 83 in June 1957. I found no obituaries or newspaper articles on his death.
1: That's interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. I
1: find that very odd. That is really weird. I mean, I'm assuming they stayed married the whole time. They did. That's really weird.
0: They were married that whole time. They never separated. It's just very odd. So we'll get into henry's family first and it's a little confusing or what i should say is who his father is is confusing and i'll explain the evidence is mixed his death certificate says one thing but the census indicates something different his death certificate lists his parents as jim barrow and lonnie jane and his daughter artie was the informant so you would think she would know who her grandparents were but in the 1880 census henry was living with thomas Barry, like strawberry, Barrow, and was listed as his son. There was a James Barrow living with him, but was listed as Thomas's brother. So Henry's uncle. So what gives? And I'm not sure, but I think, this is my theory on this. I think that Henry was the son of James, but he was raised by his uncle. Okay. And James was listed as single on the 1880 census that he was on. And I think this is the most likely strong possibility as Henry's brother, Hiram, also lists James as his father in the 1920 census and later on his death certificate. What's nice is that James and Thomas share parents, so it doesn't stop me from going back a little further. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As for the mothers, I couldn't find anything on either one of their wives, so that didn't change anything there. The bigger challenge is that on the 1880 census, Thomas was married and had his own children, probably along with James's children, if this is true, and which ones go to which person is the bigger challenge. Wow. Any mention of siblings might actually be cousins or vice versa. Wow. Thomas and James were the sons of James W. Barrow and his wife, Euphrania, or she went by Fanny.
1: I like the name Euphrania.
0: I thought that was pretty. We need
1: to bring back some of these old tiny names.
0: Yes, I think some of them are starting to come back. That's nice. Yeah. James and Fanny married in Santa Rosa County, Florida, around 1848. James was around 33 from Alabama, Fanny 18 from Georgia. James and Fanny had at least five children, four boys, James, William, Thomas, and Wesley, and one girl, Martha. James was born in 1849, Brother Thomas in December 1855. Thomas married Nancy Lane around 1870. Maybe. Because if he did get married in 1870, he would have only been 15. Nancy, 17. When we've discussed marriages in the past, it's very rare you see a male getting married that young. Mm -hmm. More typical of a female. Mm -hmm. So I think this also supports the theory that these are his brother's children Mm -hmm. because of that. The 1880 census lists them as having four sons, Hiram, Frank, Thomas, Barry, of course, as well as eldest James, E., and youngest William, or Willis. I suspect that Hiram and Thomas are James's sons. If that's the case, then so is James, E., based alone on Thomas and Nancy's ages. Because it seems unlikely for the 15-year-old boy to marry, Especially given that he didn't turn 15 until December 1870. Mm-hmm. So he would have gotten married at 14 more likely.
1: Yeah, that's real unusual for a boy.
0: Mm-hmm. Much less have his first child at 15 and a half. Yeah. James being born in July 1871. And James doesn't help matters because his death certificate doesn't list his parents. So. Okay. But I'm assuming that James is a son of James okay. as well. Presuming that the four oldest boys are the sons of James, we'll start with them. And a trend I saw throughout Clyde's tree, divorce. And this is just the beginning of it. The divorce, the rate of divorce increases as we go down the tree. (laughs) Okay. Henry's brother, James, married twice with his first marriage ending in divorce. Hiram Frank, just a year older than Henry, married Rosa Massey and then had four children. They stayed in Navarro, Texas for a long while, but eventually made their way to Houston. I found a couple notable things about Hiram starting with this article in the Corsicana Daily on September 23rd, 1916. Met with painful accident. Farm wagon struck by freight train on Cotton Belt. As Mr. H.F. Barrow of Eureka was crossing the Cotton Belt Railroad track just south of Southland Cotton Oil Mill this morning, he met with a painful accident. A freight train was backing on a switch as Mr. Barrow crossed the track. Before his wagon was off the track, his team became unruly and attempted to turn around. Before the team could be gotten under control, the train backed against the rear end of the wagon with such force that Mr. Barrow was thrown from the wagon and fell on some iron near the track, cutting a deep gash in his left temple and making an ugly wound of his left arm. The wounds are not dangerous, but are painful and were dressed by a physician. The rear wheels of the wagon were considerably damaged."
1: Wow, mm-hmm. that oh, he could have been killed.
0: Yes, and in fact, in November, Hiram filed filed a lawsuit against the Cotton Belt Railroad for damages. Wow. While the article said that the wounds weren't dangerous, it failed to mention what happened after because that was literally that happened that day, so they bandaged it. It's all good, you know. He'll heal.
1: Oh God, did he have something amputated?
0: No, okay. not exactly. Okay. I found out on his World War I draft registration card in 1918 that the accident caused him to lose his right eye. Mm, Wow. And I don't know what happened with the legal suit, if it went anywhere for him or not. Oh, and I almost forgot. um, In an ad put in the Houston Post in September 10th, 1909 by Hiram, wanted to know the whereabouts of James Barrow. When last heard he was in Houston with Oscar. I can't read the next part. So he was looking for his father. Wow. My impression of James, the father of Hiram and Henry, is that he was kind of a drifter. He never stayed very long in one place. Mm In 1920, James was listed as his father living with Hiram's family. 1910, I believe he was living with his brother Thomas again. But he was never with anybody for long, and I never saw a wife now Nancy Lane Na- Thomas Barrow's wife died around 1886 after the birth of son Robert. Thomas remarried to Dolly Clements. The couple had four children. And that's all I have on the Barrows. There's really they were hard to track. Are you fascinated by a true crime like us? If so, check out our podcast Crime Divers hosted by me, Jill, and me Laura. Look out for new episodes every Tuesday when we discuss
1: true crime from around the world. So what are you waiting for? Come join us as we dive in. So one of the things that just kind of strikes me is that Henry and Kumi Mm -hmm. seem that their personalities were like polar opposites because she seems you know at least from you know what we read and of course we know that that's all whoever wins writes the history books right Right. um you know she seems very manipulative and he seems to have this you know a real reputation for just being hardworking, honest you know how did his children end up like this and he's given and i guess he was quoted once saying i guess i should have spanked them more was like his take on all of it and it's just like Okay, I, I mean, obviously this were, you know, a set of parents that didn't have the skill set to raise a family like this. Mm-hmm. But I just find it so curious that in spite of all of it, they stayed together, you know, and I, I'm the dynamic of their relationship just fascinates me and there's literally no information on it.
0: I know. I couldn't find anything talking about them as a couple and mm-hmm. but who knows? I mean, if his father really was James, like I suspect, mm-hmm. he was He wasn't really steady in his life, Mm -hmm. but he did have that steady figure in his uncle. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was why he just stuck with everything. He just wanted to be that steady figure in his kids' lives Mm -hmm. in a way that his father wasn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because I I just think about the amount of just nose to the grindstone work it takes to have literally nothing, to be Mm -hmm. middle-aged and have literally nothing. You're living under a viaduct. To build a gas station for yourself, and that's huge. It's huge, and I'm like, I, I just find this such a fascinating contrast, you know, and mm-hmm. that you know they so they build this gas station, and the kids are living there. They're all living there, and um, and then of course they sold it apparently after Kumi passed away, and right. I'm not exactly sure what he did with himself after that, but it just, I don't know. I I just the more I even these little drips of details that I hear about them. It's like, I kind of want a movie about them. You know, <laughs> like, what were they like? You know, it just, it's fascinating. Right.
0: And I think Kumi's family is a little bit more interesting. I think it kind of builds to her personality a little bit. Because okay. I think she was raised with a lot more confidence coming from her side of the family. Okay, Kumi's family was a little easier to find and sort through to a certain point. And then some things got a little uncertain, so I just kind of left it a little bit. But before I go too deep, I did see a reference on Find a Grave that Kumi's family is a half relation to Thomas Jefferson.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Along with a list of the lineage and how they came to that conclusion. However, I was unable to find proof of that. At least nothing that left me confident enough to go on here and go, oh yeah, that's their family. Um I just think this is possibly wishful thinking, though, because I see where I I think it's wishful thinking. And and because where the breakdown comes, where I can't, I I just don't have any paperwork to confirm it. There's just so much confusion. I it would take like a really good piece of paperwork for me to believe it. Okay, it doesn't mean it's not possible. Mm -hmm. But I also should probably know, and this isn't a bias or anything that Jefferson is actually my first cousin, several times removed. When my mom made that connection, I didn't believe her. Really? Yeah, I didn't believe her until I quadruple checked. That's how skeptical I am of any famous relation.
1: So you are peripherally related to Bonnie and Clyde?
0: Potentially.
1: How curious. I always knew you had this rebel streak in
0: you. Ooh, that's me. Now I'm related to Judith Jefferson, which was his aunt. Wow. She was my great 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 grandmother. So interesting. There you go. Okay. So onward. Kumi was the third child of seven to William Wilson Walker and Mahala Ann Barron. And Barron is spelled B-A-R-R-O-N. Ah. Her oldest brother, Charles Samuel, at 30, married 17-year-old Lila White. I told you to come. They had five children, but the marriage ended in divorce. Lila would marry twice more, all marriages ending in divorce.
1: Well, you know, men are difficult.
0: (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I don't believe Charles married again. Younger sister, Bella Zora, but she went by Emma, I don't ask. I don't know. Born in 1879. First married 27-year-old Ambrose Linthicum when she was 18.
1: Okay. How do you spell Linthicum?
0: L-I-N-T-H-I-C-U-M.
1: I have never heard of that name before. Mm-hmm. Do, do we know what origin it is?
0: I have no idea. i I'd even look into that. Oh, my
1: gosh. Um,
0: they had two children, including son Ambrose Jr. This would be Clyde's first cousin an older first cousin. As far as I can tell, Ambrose's first arrest was in September 1926 when the Sheriff's Department in Lufkin, Texas found 199 bottles of homebrew during Prohibition at his home. Uh But this was minor compared to his next and most serious arrest. In the Mexia Weekly on the 1st of February 1935, Barrows' cousin held in Dallas Ambrose Lithicum, an ex-convict who, according to police, is a cousin of Clyde and Buck Barrow, notorious outlaws slain by officers, was in a Dallas County jail today. He was arrested in Waco yesterday and brought here to Dallas for questioning regarding the stabbing of Emerald Pug Thompson on New Year's Eve. Oh, my God. hmm. Ambrose Jr. was indicted two weeks later. I have no idea what the final outcome was. I could not find any other newspaper articles on it. What I do know is that Ambrose lived to the ripe old age of 76 before passing away in 1978. And he didn't pass away in prison. So.
1: Oh my gosh. Okay, so I have to share because curiosity, you know, mm-hmm. is a thing that I have. And <laughs> it looks like the last name Lithicum is mm-hmm. like a, a variation on Linthicum. Which is Scottish and I I came across just real quick this little blurb on the worm of Linton, which is from the area the Lithicum family originates. It's a legendary beast that emerged from its lair at dusk and daunty crops, livestock, and people. Ooh. It was and the worm is, of course, like WYRM which is like an old word for serpent. So
0: Oh, okay.
1: Isn't that crazy? Okay, I'm I'm done with my little aside now, but I'm like I have to tell Denise this cuz you'll love this.
0: <laughs> okay. I do. That's that's weird. Well, even if crazy. you need to
1: like like cut it from this, I'm like you just needed to know.
0: Oh no. I might not because that might fascinate our listeners. Okay, Kumi's mother, Mahala Baron was born just 2 months after her husband William in 1843. He was from Texas and she was born in Alabama. They got married at age 20 in Nacogdoches, Texas, where they remained raising their large brood of children. Now, I can't help but wonder what prompted this, but after 46 years of marriage, Mahala divorced William in early 1910.
1: She was like, all my kids are out of the house. I'm done with you.
0: But they had been out for a while. So it's just like,
1: interesting,
0: but it gets better. Oh, God. Tell me. So William would die just 10 years later at age 77. Mahala decided to apply for a widow's pension from William's service as a Confederate soldier in the Civil War. Even though they were divorced.
1: I hope she got it. She deserves every penny.
0: You would think. So she claimed that they were still married, though.
1: Oh. Well, lying's never good.
0: And Pynchon only went to why, you know, and it asked, have you remarried again? She was honest. No. Mm -hmm. But she never said that they were divorced. She said that he is my husband. So she was approved in April 1922 until someone notified the officials in October 1922 that Mahala had divorced William and sent the divorce decree with the paperwork.
1: Probably one of William's siblings going, fuck that bitch.
0: Yeah. And so she was cut off. Wow. But I can't help but wonder something had to prompt that divorce after 46 years. Yeah. That's crazy. Because I know I've met couples that have been married that long. They're just like, I'm just riding with it until we die. Yeah. That's
1: kind of, yeah. I mean, I've I've noticed that when people get divorced, they get divorced when the kids are real young Mm -hmm. or when the last one's out of the house. And it's rare that it happens in those between times. I mean, it still does happen. But then usually after the kids are out of the house a while, they'll just kind of resign to their fate. You know, like if they don't get divorced, then they just are kind of too tired to deal and they all have separate lives and all of that, but they don't actually get divorced. So that's interesting.
0: That's true. I actually learned in a sociology class once upon a time that the most common times for divorce was after two to three years of marriage mm-hmm. and then after 18 to 25. And it was related to exactly why you said first couple of years, they realize they're not going to work it through. And the next one is they lose touch with the kids or whatever, or they suffer through the marriage with the kids for whatever reason. And they wait until they're leaving. And then they're like, I can't mm-hmm. be with this person anymore.
1: Like I know so many couples got th- that got divorced at 30 years because the kids were finally out of the house and you know, they had more than one child so that would for the youngest to go. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's, I just, you don't often hear of people who are actually elderly who go mm-hmm. ahead and get divorced. So right. that's, I'm fascinated.
0: I thought that was interesting. Kumi's father, William, was one of seven, son of another William originally from Tennessee. Mahala's family, though, were originally from Georgia before first moving to Alabama and then settling in Texas by 1854. Mahala was one of eight children to her mother, Phoebe Barber, and father, Samuel Bold's Barron. Samuel and Phoebe married two months after the birth of daughter, Sarah Elizabeth. Now, given the times that's kind of odd and it's possible samuel was married prior to wife phoebe especially given that he was 10 years older and his wife died in childbirth and sarah elizabeth was the result of that relationship and phoebe became her de facto mother if that's the case i didn't see the records i just find it unlikely that they would marry after having a child in georgia Mm -hmm. in the 1850s yeah that's just not done back then today anything goes but back then, not so much. Samuel was a farmer and lived to age 77. His wife lived to be 82. Clyde's great, great grandparents were Thomas Jefferson Barron, born in 1785 in Greene County, Georgia, and Sally Clay, 1790 in Georgia. They had at least seven children. Robert, you're going to love these names. That's why I have to say them. Robert Faraba, Samuel Greenberry, Thomas Mahala and Delpha. And the, they got married in 1805. I love all of those names. Aren't they great?
1: What is Robert's middle name again? Faraba or something? No,
0: no, that wasn't his middle name. That was his sister's name. Was Faraba?
1: Okay, what was his middle name? Because or were those all singular names?
0: These were all singular <gasps> names. Oh. Seven children. There was Robert. One number two was Faraba.
1: Faraba. Okay, I, it sounded like that was like Robert Faraba,
0: and then oh, okay. gotcha. Then there was Samuel. Then there was son Greenberry son greenberry. thomas yep daughter mahala and daughter delpha
1: wow
0: and there's some stuff on greenberry i just didn't
1: Huh?
0: at that point i I already had enough with just the siblings of clyde that i'm just like
1: <laughs> well and honestly the name mahala i mm-hmm. mean it i, I mean in their family obviously it kind of caught on but you don't really hear that name very often
0: i have it in my family do you really mm-hmm. that's very cool so
1: I'm just trying to figure out, like, what it, do you happen to know, like, where that name came from? Because I think of it like Mahalo from Hawaii. So oh, uh, that's Mahalo. Um, right. No, I don't know. I've never looked into it. I'm just like, I don't know. I'm just I get you know how I get. I'm sorry. I just get crazy about names because, you know, OK, granted, a lot of people don't put a lot of thought into their baby's names. They're just kind of like, it sounds pretty. And then they end up naming it things like
0: syphilis. Yeah, but but that's how I got my name. My mom and dad liked how my name sounded.
1: Yeah, but Denise is a beautiful name. And it has a beautiful meaning. So it's like, that's kind of cool. You know, the name Zelda is a girl's name. It's German origin, and it means gray fighting maid.
0: Oh, that fits you so well. I know.
1: Like, people picked a good name for me.
0: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go to Clyde's siblings. Yes. Because I got as much as I could in terms of interesting stories going back. I mean, I I don't think everybody wants a huge list of everybody's siblings and birthdays and all that.
1: But I find it very impressive you were able to get back as far as you were, considering Mm -hmm. that these were not wealthy people. No. You know, and the fact you were able to go back to the 1700s. I mean, that's pretty amazing, actually.
0: And it's the clay line that where they think goes back further. Mm hmm. But there's so many people with clay and stuff like that. I just couldn't sort through it in the time given. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying. It could be that there's a connection. I just wasn't able to prove it enough. Okay. And I always think of it as wishful thinking until it's proven. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay. So Clyde was the fifth child of seven. So his oldest brother was Elvin Wilson. And he went by the name Jack.
1: Of course he did.
0: Now, (laughs) Clyde actually used the name elvin williams as an alias when he committed crimes oh my gosh Mm -hmm. oh my gosh when i saw that on his jail record for him i about i just i laughed at out loud i'm like oh my gosh he named himself after his brother
1: that's funny okay
0: well jack was likely the most steady and law-abiding brother or so i thought (laughs) when i started this and we'll get there in a minute Jack was fifteen years older, born in 1894. In December 1914, Jack married the love of his life, Drusilla Moore Bryson. No, he was twenty. Drusilla, Drusilla, I
1: love this. Okay,
0: he was twenty, she sixteen. But the marriage wouldn't last. The couple would have four daughters: Maxine, Elrida, Vida, and Margaret. Oldest daughter, Maxine, didn't have much luck with men. She first married Julian H. Armstrong. She was 17. He was 41. Ew. Yeah. They divorced in December 1939. She would marry and divorce once more. And Maxine did marry a third time. I think that one stuck. Now, younger sister, Jeffy Alreda, also had a starter marriage When she was 17 and he was 31 mm. As did Sister Vita But at least she was the same Age as her husband wow. On her starter marriage Now Jack worked as an auto Mechanic at his dad's garage And to help ends meet His wife ran a beauty shop It's likely the events of Bonnie and Clyde Weighed heavy on Jack and his marriage to Dusilla as it came to an end Sometime around 1940 My guess is the divorce had more to do with the following article I found in What Happened Next. Clyde Barrow's brother is held in slaying. Fort Worth Star-Telegram on October 15, 1939. Jack Barrow, 46-year-old brother of the notorious Clyde Barrow, surrendered to officers Saturday, a short time after Otis Jenkins, 25, was shot to death in a cafe just outside the city limits deputy sheriff decker said he was told the shooting occurred after an argument barrow his nose cut and bleeding gave himself up at the sheriff's office and was treated in the hospital ward before being placed in a cell a few days later jack and his brother elsie were charged because elsie was at the shooting with murder the bond being set at ten thousand dollars for jack and twenty five hundred dollars for elsie
1: whoa that's like real money
0: yeah back then especially on November 1st, 1940, Jack was convicted of the murder and sentenced to 99 years. So I ha- I imagine that had more to do with the divorce with Drusilla, mm-hmm. that he was going to be in prison for all that time, than anything else. Wow. Jack would die in prison seven years later of cardiac disease. Wow. Now, I know with Bonnie's family, we saw a lot of cancer. With this family, it's a lot of heart issues leading to death. Wow. Clyde's eldest sister was Artie Adele. She was born in 1899, and she married her first of three-plus husbands, Ivy Jones, when she was 16. I have no idea how old he was. I couldn't find much information on him. They divorced, and in the 1920 census was listed as the wife of Wilbur Jennings Winkler. Here's the odd thing, though, or should I say odd for the time. Artie and Wilbur didn't marry until July 1922 but they were living together in 1920 as a married couple in the census. Wow. Mm-hmm. They divorced before 1940 when she was listed as the wife of John Calhoun Keys. But they didn't make it official, as far as I know, until 1945. Hmm. So what's possible is they got married somewhere, and that marriage record, for some reason, didn't survive. They divorced and they remarried. I don't know.
1: Hmm. That seems but, curious, though.
0: Yeah. They would divorce at some point and then remarry in 1966 to each other again. <laughs> As one does. Yeah. And that was after he was married to somebody else and then, <laughs> like, he married. Yeah. In March 1981, at the age of 81, Artie died of septic shock with pneumonia.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. Her husband, John, would follow just three months later. He was 74.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: The next older brother was Ivan Marvin, or Ivy Marvin, or Marvin Ivy. I mean, it's written multiple different ways, but he was better known as Buck Barrow. Buck likely held a large influence on his younger brother, Clyde, and their baby brother, Elsie. He was just six years older than Clyde and getting in trouble early, as it turns out with brother Jack. Like I said, I thought Jack was the better influence, but I was wrong.
1: (laughs) You know who all these guys remind me of? Did you ever see the TV show Malcolm in the Middle?
0: I watched a couple. I didn't really like it, so I'm...
1: <gasps> I know. It's fantastic. But the oldest the oldest brother was mm-hmm. like, you know, just a complete uh, delinquent. And then his brothers coming behind him kind of like topped him. But this just reminds <laughs> me of Malcolm in the Middle.
0: Okay. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Um, I stumbled on a little article from the Fort Worth Record Telegram on 14th of July, 1924. Brothers in jail on bigamy charges. Elmer and Buck Barrow, both of whom have been guests there before, are at the Ellis County Jail where they were committed on bigamy charges by Sheriff Forbes. Both of them? Both of them. And notice it says Elmer, but I think they just screwed that up. The officers declared that the Barrow brothers were each married once before coming to Ellis County and that after making the Ferris community their home, they each took another wife.
1: Oh, Mm -hmm. my gosh, those poor women. Yeah.
0: The article explains that both brothers were tried on charges regarding a car theft with Elmer receiving and serving two years. So Jack had been in prison at this point and this is i gotta remind myself this is 1924 so they were he was he got in jail in 1922 wow and bucking a four-year suspended sentence for that same crime now clyde doesn't have a brother named elmer but jack's given name was elvin Mm -hmm. and i found that his car theft conviction as elmer with a note that he was in jail again with his prison number prisoner number Uh where they had put him and that led me straight to jack wow confirming that this was the hymn. The car theft occurred in 1921. Jack received a pardon from the governor in October 1922.
1: How did that happen?
0: I don't know. I, it's like governor would give out blanket pardons and he wasn't the only brother to get a pardon in this family. Mm-hmm. That's
1: curious.
0: Yeah. Now I wish I knew who Jack was trying to marry as well as Buck, most especially Buck, because now I'm not sure if his second marriage was legal. But let's back up a bit. In July 1922, Buck married Margaret Elizabeth Hinegar, or Liza. He was 19. She was 13.
1: Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just strong. Oh, Oh. gross. The next
0: year, they would have twins, Elvin Vernon and Marvin Ivan Jr. Sadly, baby Elvin died five months later later of influenza meningitis oh my gosh now this is where it all gets complicated sure enough on july 8th 1924 this is only a few days before they were arrested for bigamy charges buck married pearl ivy cheshire who was 16 i assumed he divorced liza until i saw the article and i'm not sure pearl knew that buck wasn't divorced or had been charged with bigamy Oh, my God. Well, why? Because Pearl gave birth to their daughter in June 1925. And Liza gave birth to their son, Jack, in October 1925.
1: <gasps> no. So he was yes. in two households.
0: Basically, yes.
1: Oh, my God. And you
0: would think if they knew about the bigamy charge. Yeah. They would have been, like, leaving him.
1: Whoa. Well, and not to mention, I'm like, well, no wonder you're stealing everything. He had, like, lots of mouths to feed there.
0: hmm wow. Now, I'm betting Liza figured it out as she left Buck and Pearl stuck around a bit longer. In the 1928 Dallas City Directory, Pearl is listed as his wife, but that relationship ended before 1930. Okay. In the 1930 census, I found Pearl married to Ernest Clark and her and um, Buck's daughter, Dorothy, living with Pearl's parents. And in fact, I never saw Dorothy living with anybody but Pearl's parents. Like, she never lived with her own mother.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. And Buck,
0: in 1930, was in jail. And Margaret lived with her two sons and her mother in Dallas. Actually, he Buck was not in prison in the 1930 census. I, I need to make a correction. He was actually an escapee from prison. Um, he was in prison for burglary and theft over $50. He had been sentenced to four years in December 1929. Then in March 1930, Buck made his escape from Ferguson State Prison in Midway, Texas, when he was a trustee. And a trustee is basically somebody in prison who hasn't committed anything that's violent Mm -hmm. in nature. And he's had good behavior, so they give him a little bit more trust. Apparently that trust was misplaced. Buck was smarter than Fred Mace from our last episode where, you know, Fred Mace escaped and he ran home. Mm -hmm. Buck didn't run home. Instead, he went to Oklahoma, where he met and fell in love with Iva Benny Caldwell, otherwise known as Blanche. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They married in July 1931, and Blanche encouraged Buck to turn himself in, which he did in December that year. He had been gone for one year and nine months. Then, in March 1933, Buck was granted a full pardon by Governor Ma Ferguson.
1: Governor Ma Ferguson.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Ma for a minute.
1: Let, let's do, because that seems crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. Ma Ferguson was Miriam Amanda Wallace, born in 1875, and went. she actually went to college. At age 24, she married James Edward Ferguson, a lawyer. Her nickname Ma came from her first two initials being M.A.
1: Ah, that's interesting. I didn't know mm-hmm.
0: that. Now, her husband got into politics and became governor of Texas in 1915, but he ended up convicted on 10 charges by the Texas State Senate, removed from office, and barred from public office again. Why? Well, because he vetoed appropriations for the University of Texas as a retaliatory act for not dismissing faculty members that Paul Ferguson found objectionable, particularly William Harding Mays, a former Texas lieutenant governor, as well as the founder and dean of the School of Journalism at the University of Texas. Oh, my gosh. And apparently, Mays had written some articles against Ferguson. And this ticked Ferguson off, and he wanted him gone. Wow. But it didn't help Paul Ferguson that Mays had many friends still in the Texas Senate from his time as lieutenant governor. Wow. Oh, by the way, Paul ran for president in 1920, only garnering... 0.2% of the vote. Hmm. Although he got 9% from Texans. Hmm. Since his attempts to become governor again, much less president failed, he encouraged his wife, Ma, to run in 1924. She did and won the first female governor of Texas and only the second female governor in the United States. But, and this is a, a distinction. She was the only, she was the first woman elected as governor. Okay. The other woman was governor of Wyoming, and she had taken, uh, she had become governor like a couple of weeks before Ma was elected because her husband died and she took over the role.
1: Ah, okay. And was
0: sworn in. Interestingly enough, Ma lost in 1926, in large part due to the suffragettes who supported her opponent, Dan Moody. Hmm. So here, a woman becomes governor, it's all great, but <laughs> they weren't having it with her. Mm -hmm. Dan Moody had gone after Pa Ferguson for corruption and stealing money and that type of thing. Ma would be elected again in 1932, serving until January 1935. Now, Ma and didn't were not drinkers. They didn't drink alcohol. They had nothing to do with it. But they also opposed prohibition. And Ma opposed the Ku Klux Klan, was vehemently against them, which I thought, oh, that's a positive, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And she even supported a state sales tax. Oh, my gosh. I know. That's like super weird in Texas. Yeah. However, I found a quote of hers that made me laugh. And it sums up some ignorance that we still run across today. And it was regarding bilingualism in the Texas schools. Hmm. Ma Ferguson. Now, she has been attributed as saying this. There's no proof that she actually said it, but it was too good to not say. If the king's English was good enough for Jesus Christ... It ought to be good enough for the children of Texas. No. (laughs) Yes. She actually did not originate that quote, but I can't. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. That. That's Texas. There you go. So I, I believe she probably did say it, but she got the quote from someone else. There's this whole thing. And I found like people would say, well, if St. Paul, you know, and it's just, if if the King James Bible was good enough for Saint Paul or something like that, oh my <laughs> gosh, mm-hmm.
1: that's so wrong. That's just so yes. wrong. Oh. Okay, I have to admit, Buck so far is the most highly entertaining of all of them.
0: He is. So just four months after his pardon, Buck would be dead. Oh. On July nineteenth, the Barrow gang holed up in Red Court Tourist Court in Platte Yeah, that's what it's called. Uh At the he holed up at the Red Court Tourist Court in Platte City, Missouri, which you had mentioned. And Platte City, Missouri is a small town not too far north from Kansas City. And they were in two different cabins. One of the men went into town to get some medicine and was spotted. Oh, and a tip was called into the sheriff as the gang was wanted for murder at this point. The sheriff called in backup from multiple jurisdictions. The gang, which included Bonnie, Clyde, Buck, Blanche, and W.D. Jones, shot their way out and escaped. However, Buck had been shot in the head, and Blanche was also wounded. According to Blanche, she kept a finger in Buck's wound in his head to stop the bleeding. Five days later, the gang was found again near Dexter, Iowa. All were wounded. Only Blanche and Buck were unable to escape. Buck went to King's Daughters Hospital in Perry, Iowa. Interestingly enough, in Dallas County, his head wound was surprisingly clean. The doctors noted he had, um, it seems that Bonnie and Clyde and Blanche, they would clean it with some hydrogen peroxide and stuff to keep that.
1: Oh, well, at least they knew to do that.
0: Yeah. He had another new gunshot wound to the back, though, causing him paralysis. Oh, my gosh. His temperature was high, running at 105 degrees. Doctors allowed law enforcement to interview Buck, even giving him stimulants to keep him awake for the law enforcement officers. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Kumi Barrow raced to see Buck with her youngest son, Elsie, in tow. Five days after the Iowa shootout, Buck died. The cause of death on his death certificate lists infection of brain caused by gunshot wound.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And he was actually in a coma for a time. And I actually, I might put it on the website. I haven't quite decided, but there's a picture of him in a coma. Oh, my God. Well, I, mean, he, I mean, you don't see blood or anything. It's just... He
1: looks asleep. Yeah. His wife, though, didn't she lose, like, lose an eye over all this? We're going to get there. And actually, isn't it curious to you how many people in this family lost one eye?
0: Yeah, two point? seems too many.
1: Yeah, Well, there was like, there were like three or four, weren't there, that lost an eye through different means, like Kumi lost one, Blanche lost one. Oh, that's true, because
0: of that shot, yeah. It just, it's weird. Yeah. It's unusual, yeah. I would say so. The shootout in Iowa resulted in surgery for Blanche, Um, a bullet-shattered glass that went into one of her eyes, which is what you were just talking about. Now, let's talk about Blanche for a second. She was 81 pounds and 5'1 with auburn hair.
1: She was starving to death. Is what you're
0: telling me. <laughs> she was really tiny. Yeah. The police took her to the jail in Des Moines. Despite her eye injury, Blanche stayed at the jail until she was extradited to Missouri for the Platte City shooting, as well as Joplin. And that's why the police were after them in Platte City it was because of the shooting in Joplin with the police that you mentioned earlier. She refused counsel. I know this comes up and again and again and pled guilty and was sentenced to the 10 years. Now, Blanche had been married before Buck. It was a super short starter marriage that lasted less than three years. Of course, it didn't help that she married John Calloway, a 38-year-old Texan, when she was just 16. Wow. Yeah.
1: That poor girl.
0: So, soon after arriving at the prison, prison doctors set to fixing her injured eye. A good part of her time in prison at first was spent in the infirmary. Jeez. With... <laughs> with her eye uh, by january 1936 she was told no doctor in the country would be able to save it mm. for some unclear reason blanche blamed then us senator harry s truman for her complete loss of vision in her left eye
1: that seems odd
0: yeah i think she was he she saw that he was being groomed to be president someday mm-hmm. and thought that he, Politically, he was trying to make sure she didn't get the go to a doctor who could help her, oh, Okay, and that he was making those moves. But there was no evidence that he had any part in any decision about whether or not she would go to see a specialist in a different state or whatever. In December 1936, Blanche's request for parole was denied. Parole would be granted in March 1939. She served less than six years of her 10-year sentence. Hi, I'm
1: Paige, and I host the podcast Reverie True Crime. I tell stories of the darkness, terrors, injustices, and sorrows from all around the world. From cases most of us have heard of, to the ones that maybe not everyone has. You can listen to Reverie True Crime wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. That's R-E-V-E-R-I-E, true crime. Remember, stay safe,
0: remain aware of your surroundings, and take care. When news of her release came, her father, Matt Caldwell, was thrilled. He got the house all ready for her return. And there's a sweet little article, I'll probably put it on the website, about him getting everything ready. And then she didn't come straight to his house at first. She went and visited some friends before she got there and the ugh, the media was just hanging around. The reporters were hanging around him going, waiting to see him, see her. Like, how are you feeling about her? not coming yet. You know, type of thing. I, I just Bug. seems, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Journalism she back did. then was just sketch.
0: Yeah. But I mean, she did come and she did take care of her dad after that. Blanche married one last time in February, 1941 to Edwin Burt Frazier in Texas. I believe they remained together until his death in 1969. Blanche would live to be 77 years old, dying in December 1988. Wow. So, Clyde's youngest brother was Leon C., or as everyone called him, L.C. He was four years younger and possibly the one who got arrested the most. Oh, God. I mean, growing up watching all the trouble of his brothers must have served as some sort of inspiration for him. <laughs> I'm also sure the cops kept a closer eye on him because of his brothers. Mm-hmm. In January 1934, Elsie married Audrey Fay Knight, four months before the ambush. A few months later, in October 1934, Elsie was arrested for the robbery of a drugstore where he got $29. Making wow. that robbery so worth it. He was convicted and given a five-year suspended sentence. This wasn't his first time facing charges. Others from the past included auto theft. Wow. Now, after the harboring trial, two months later, that we discussed in part one, Elsie was found guilty and sentenced to 13 months at Leavenworth. This wouldn't be the last time he went to prison. <laughs> Here is a timeline. I had to do this in timeline form because there is just so much of his life post-harboring trial, which was in January 1935. Early 1936, he's released from prison. March 1936, arrested for robbery, sent to Texas State Prison in Huntsville for five years. Oh, my gosh. December 1937, Audrey divorces L.C. probably because he's supposed to be in prison for a while.
1: Yeah, that's what I'd do.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd be fed up with that stuff. Yep. May 1941, L.C. arrested for theft of three sacks of onions <laughs> and possible theft of the U.S. mail. So there you go. I mean, he wasn't a postmaster, but he liked the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Granted, he probably wanted to steal cash and stuff out of the mail, but you know. That's
1: just like so funny. I don't even think you realize how funny that is.
0: (laughs) I'm funny when I don't try to be. There you go. (laughs) Um, Sometime between 1937 and 1940, he marries a woman by the name of Lorraine. August 22nd, 1941. In the Austin American, this article, lectured on alimony, youngest Barrow plans to marry for the fourth time. Oh my gosh. District Judge Payne Bush, and I looked him up. He's not related to those bushes in Texas. (laughs) District Judge Payne Bush granted Elsie Barrow, youngest of the Barrow brothers, a divorce from his third wife, Lorraine. I had no idea who his second wife was. Couldn't find that. Bush supplemented the decree with a lecture criticizing Barrow for his many appearances in court on alimony hearings. Three hours later, Barrow obtained at the county clerk's office a license to marry Miss Ann Bell Gann of Dallas. Oh. So he gets divorced and gets married the same day.
1: (laughs) Wow. Just.
0: Yeah. Wow. One week later, his wife and her sister were arrested. From an article in the Fort Worth Star Telegram. <laughs> I tell you, this is just. Oh, and this is a gosh. story out of Kansas City, Missouri. On August 28, 1941, police Thursday sought two men, one believed to be a brother of the late Clyde Barrow, who abandoned 12 cans of caviar, three cartons of chewing gum, and their wives Wednesday after <laughs> a 20 minute chase.
1: Just some of the chattel they had along, yeah. you know.
0: Oh my god! After a 20-minute chase by patrolmen, and the article also comes out that Elsie was Ann Bell's eighth husband.
1: <laughs> Did she know how to make arsenic? <laughs> I,
0: I think she just was divorced multiple times. Oh my
1: gosh! Oh my gosh! Okay,
0: September 1941, Ann Bell was charged with shoplifting. Elsie was being held for violating parole for going on a trip to Kansas City with Ann Bell with no permission oh my and he was returned to Leavenworth for 2 years.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: There's more. Oh, there's so much more. <laughs> December 1943. He's the sixth person charged in connection of a theft of a whiskey shipment valued at $17,136 traveling from Illinois to New Mexico.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: In January 1944, he pleads guilty and is sentenced to two years for that. Wow. Oh, but wait, there's even more. Oh, my God. February 15th, 1946, from the Amarillo Globe Times. Police were attempting today to piece together the circumstances surrounding the pistol shooting last night of Elsie Barrow, who ran four blocks for police protection after being shot. Farrow, clutching a bullet wound in his side, staggered up to traffic officer Solomon in downtown Dallas shortly before midnight. I've been shot, he said, and they are trying to kill me. Please stay with me. Now, he refused to ever say who they were, Uh and police doubted he ran four blocks, thinking he likely had been pushed out of a car. Wow. Oh, my God.
1: Well, that's kind of how they roll, right? Mm
0: -hmm. You know? Wow. October 1951, he's arrested for narcotics. Charges were dismissed in November. September 1953, he was arrested for illegal possession of barbiturates. So now he's gotten into drugs a bit. Oh and my, my gosh. And my guess is he was in pain. Oh, I am sure. Yeah. In May 1956, he marries Leona Rose Van Vost, single mom of at least two. One being Buddy, who we'll talk about a little bit later then things slow down a lot september 3rd 1979 elsie dies at age 66 headline from the atlanta constitution elsie barrow brother of gangsters dies at 66 wow and i'll post that on the website that was it for him for a while so he remained married to that last wife until his death wow and finally we make it to clyde's youngest sibling his sister lillian marie Okay. who was nine years Clyde's junior, born in 1918. Marie grew up around all of this. Her big brothers in and out of jail. I can't help but think that they influenced her choices of husbands. Yes, more than one, and more than two, five husbands. Oh, my. Yeah. She married her first husband, Joe Francis, just eight days shy of her 16th birthday. He was 20. Oh, my. They married four days before the ambush in May 1934. So things changed very quickly for that couple. It's likely Marie met Joe through her brother, Elsie, because in August 1933, Elsie and Joe were arrested on a raid of a farm in Acodoches, Texas. They were wanted for questioning about an auto theft. Oh, Uh Uh-huh. This would not be the last time Joe would be in jail. (laughs) Both he and Marie... (laughs) Both he and Marie were found guilty of harboring Bonnie and Clyde. Joe served 60 days in jail. Marie, one hour with U.S. Marshals. Wow. Which is just ridiculous. So Joe and Marie would divorce sometime between 1936 and 1939. Marie then married Willard Ray Sellers. Or Ray is what he went by. Ray was no better than Joe, perhaps worse when it came to the law. The couple either married before April 1937, when Ray went to prison for burglary, or right after he was released in November 1939. Oh. I just know that they were married and living together by 1940. I never found an actual marriage record. Okay. This marriage didn't last much longer than the last, likely due, in part, to Ray's criminal activity. However, Marie liked bad boys, so who knows? In May 1940, Ray was held on burglary charges for theft of the 7-Up Double Cola Bottling Company in Grayson, Texas, at midnight on the 15th. It seems he blew up the safe. (laughs) Not, yeah. Not only that, but he was out on bond from Denton, Texas, for doing the same exact thing at the Coca-Cola Bottling Works.
1: I want a movie about this guy, too. (laughs) There's
0: so many. Oh, my gosh. Like... Wow. Then in February 1941, he and a pal, Walter LeMay, were charged with the robbery of the Texas Power and Light Company office in Ferris, Texas, as well as the armed robbery of its watchmen. The robberies had taken place in 1940, and Ray was suspected of also robbing three drugstores. stores. Yeah. Ray was busy. He had a pro- family to provide for now. <laughs> True. Uh, <laughs> Marie and Ray would divorce between February 1942 and December 1943. Ray had been sentenced to 10 years and was serving time in Oklahoma, possibly why they divorced. But like all good outlaws, Ray tried to escape. And he succeeded in October 1943. You see, the Oklahoma prison held a rodeo. Ah. And they had spectators come to watch the prison rodeo.
1: Oh, my.
0: And Ray and three others were smart enough to get changed into regular clothing blend in and blend out of the oh my grouch. gosh mm-hmm. so they just left the rodeo ray would never be captured not exactly on december 1st 1943 in dallas he approached a dairy looking for help he had been shot with a 45 in his chest while in the hospital ray was indicted for yet another robbery that happened soon after his escape a robbery that included the theft of Sixty five hundred grains of morphine, four thousand dilated tablets, <sighs> two ounces of cocaine, and two hundred and fourteen dollars in cash.
1: Oh my god.
0: He would never serve time or reveal who shot him. He died on December fourth.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. Marie would marry Purnell Daniels in nineteen forty four. I don't know much on him. They divorced at some point. <laughs> Why do you know is that Marie was arrested? herself, and sentenced to prison for three years on charges of forgery and passing checks in April 1947. She was released in April 1949. Now this happened after Kumi died. So now all but one of her children went to prison.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Marie's fourth husband was William Grisafi, also ending in divorce, I assume. (laughs) She eventually found a life partner at age 50 with Luke Skoma in 1968. Now, before they got married, Luke had been quite the rabble rouser, lawbreaker as a young man. I found this article in the Austin American Statesman on December ninth, nineteen thirty-eight. Luke Scoma, pain and police necks. Dallas policemen, whom Luke Scoma, well-known hoodlum, threatened to kill if they tried to arrest him again, decided that Luke was a pain in the neck. Patrolmen arrested Scoma six times and found him rather docile. Cruising squad cars five times found him on the street and each time picked him up while one of the patrolmen called headquarters. Five times a patrolman asked, do you want Luke's coma for anything? And five times the desk sergeant answered no. <gasps> the sixth time the sergeant told patrolman Tom Collins to bring him in. I'm tired of talking about him, the sergeant said. So Luke was taken to the police station where he admitted seven burglaries in addition to the eighth that he had been charged with.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm that's just wow
0: yeah luke and marie would remain married for 30 years marie died on february 3rd 1999 at age 80 luke died three weeks later wow now you probably noticed i skipped over nell may nelly barrow a
1: little bit is she the only one that didn't like die in prison
0: yeah she's the only one who didn't get arrested too um she was older than Clyde by four years and likely the most stable of the bunch Other than marrying three times.
1: (laughs) You know, that's not so bad for that family.
0: Yeah, she had a more tame life than her siblings. Her last husband was Wyatt Norman Francis. They married in 1945, although they were listed as married in the 1940 census. Um, Yeah, Nellie died in 1968 of ALS. Oh, Mm -hmm.
1: that's awful.
0: Now, let's talk about what happened after, though, because there's still more to the story. As early as June 1934, Billie Jean Mace and Artie Barrow went on a speaking tour. Yes, they made appearances in vaudeville halls and theaters, telling people that crime doesn't pay and it can lead to prison or death. (laughs) And they should know because it happened to their siblings. Oh my God. I think I saw a reference to Kumi and Emma might have taken part on one or two of these as well, but... Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. And this isn't, I don't think it's well known. It's just because it happened to be in the newspaper saying Artie Barrow and billy Jean Mace will be here at such and such time. Come see them and hear them speak. Oh my gosh. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Now, there were two court cases that the families were involved in after the ambush. The first one came soon after. A film of the incident ended up in some movie theaters. In particular, the Capitol Theater and the Palace Theater in Dallas. So Emma Parker and Kumi Barrow sought an injunction preventing the film to be shown of their kids being shot down. Yeah. I mean, that's literally what the film was. And they sued not only the theaters, but also Jameson Film Company and W.G. Underwood of the Independent Film Company, who had made the films. Um, a judge did pass the injunction on June 2nd, and it was an in- it was left open-ended, like it's indefinitely. Wow. So, and the second lawsuit happened after the release of the feature film Bonnie and Clyde in 1967. Artie, Marie, and Elsie filed suit against Warner Brothers for the depiction of their brother Clyde, saying it defamed him, specifically that the movie depicted him as a, and this is a quote, a sodomist and homosexual engaging in criminal acts of armed bank robbery, murder, and resisting arrest. Now, having not seen the movie... I'm guessing that they showed that he was raped in prison.
1: So it's interesting. You mentioned that because in a couple of the articles that I was reading was that there was a theory that being raped in prison gave mm-hmm. Clyde a homosexual bent and that they saw him as more homosexual and sexually dysfunctional after he got out of prison then. So that might be what the film was doing.
0: Oh, okay. You know. I, I, now I feel like I have to see the film, mm-hmm. even though I couldn't get through the first few minutes. Yeah. Just so I can understand what they was showing.
1: I bet you could find a nice synopsis on IMDb or something.
0: So. <laughs> I might do that. I might do that. The basis for the lawsuit was a Texas law that allowed recovery against people who blacken the memory of the dead in drawings. The suit, though, failed and was appealed to the Texas Supreme Court in 1971, where it was ultimately dismissed. Wow. Now, their graves. <laughs> Let's talk about that, too. Apparently, Clyde's tombstone has been stolen multiple times over the years. And I found the following in the Paris News. This is a Texas, <laughs> Paris, yeah. um, on the 1st of November, 1979. And the headline on this one is Clyde Barrow's tombstone found. Clyde Barrow's traveling tombstone once again has been found after disappearing during Texas OU weekend. The gray marker now has been stolen five times, usually around the time of the annual football clash between the University of Texas and Oklahoma University. The game is played at Dallas's Cotton Bowl. Police checking out a tip found the marker in another cemetery near this Dallas suburb. Barrow was a famous Prussian-era bank robber whose escapades with companion Bonnie Parker were made into a hit movie. Mrs. Artie Key, Barrow's eldest sister, said the family paid $140 last year to have the stone returned to Western Heights Cemetery, and she expected it would cost at least that much again this year. It's a cost we could do without, Mrs. Key said. Lord, I wish they would leave it alone. Wow. I didn't see any other reference to it. Hopefully they did start leaving it alone, but...
1: Well, you know how, what I think of people, so... <laughs> yeah.
0: Pe- well, people are assholes, so there yeah, you go. Yeah, are. In recent cool. years, there's been a push to bury Bonnie next to Clyde. Yeah. This effort has been led by Bonnie's niece, Ria Lean Linder, and Elsie Barrow's stepson, Buddy. They are trying to raise the money to make it happen. Now, the last I saw on this was from 2019, so I don't know if they've given up, but these, they're both... I think uh, Buddy's in his late 70s, and I know Rhea's in her 80s, so we'll see. I do have a couple quick little facts about Buck's second wife, Pearl. She died just two years after he did in a car accident. Her husband, Ernest, would die 31 years later in an auto-pedestrian accident. Wow. I just found that odd. That is odd. Audrey, Elsie's first wife, served a 15-day term in jail for harboring Bonnie and Clyde. And that is the family tree of Clyde Chestnut Barrow. Wow. 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 And that family is a mess. And, I mean, we thought Terry Blair's family was a mess.
1: Wow. I
0: am just... It's a whole new
1: world out there for me some days. And I am just (laughs) in awe of these people. I mean... Mm -hmm. And seriously, we need a whole set of, like... Barrow and, what was the, I, I, of course, I'm spacing the other name. Parker. Parker. We need, like, movies. We need a series. Yeah. You know? Ooh, a
0: Netflix series. That would be awesome. On Maybe start with these characters. Yeah. Like, starting from, like, Bonnie and Clyde when they were born or their childhoods. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that would be so good.
1: I think that would be, cool. it'd be like Sons of Anarchy, right? Yeah. Wow. Only with, like, Ford V8s instead of
0: you know. So, movie producers, talk to us. We'll, we'll help you flesh yeah, it out. Seriously. It's our idea. We got we got all the good <laughs> ideas right here. Right here. <laughs> oh my Well,
1: I gotta tell you, Denise, you went, like, above and beyond. You found some really cool stuff.
0: Oh, it was fun finding it. I mean, there was just so much out there. I, You know, I hoped to find a little bit more going back to see if I could get more stories, but they just weren't in the papers because mm-hmm. they were poor. There mm-hmm. wasn't... Yeah. And then you realize that sometimes in the Especially in the small papers, they have to be part of the community to even make it to the papers. Right. And if you're really poor, you're not necessarily part considered as part of the community, right. which is sad because right. you really are. But yeah, it's a reality. Yeah, that I hadn't thought of before. Or I mean, not that my family was wealthy in the community they were in in Missouri, but it was such a small farming community. Mm-hmm. And they were a big part of it in church and doing stuff. And they were but, not
1: living under a viaduct.
0: No. Yeah. No. Yeah. But I'm talking even when they were in different parts of Texas mm-hmm. before they got to the viaduct. Mm-hmm. It's just Yeah. Yeah. So we forgot we did do this at the top. So how have you been, Zelda?
1: Oh, things are good. I'm I'm moving soon. So mm-hmm. my life has been a whirl of packing and and purchasing things. I am buying things and like Ooh. it's so much fun. I'm actually currently looking at cars i'm going to purchase a car have you narrowed it down well i'm honestly eyeballing the uh, ford escape hybrid the Mm -hmm. problem right now is i don't know if you've heard there's it's a ford not that that's not the problem i've had i've actually had pretty good (laughs) luck with fords but um, okay the and i'm not like married to the brand but you know it seems good Uh But what's happening is there's a car shortage. And so, like, the little microchips or whatever they use inside the cars nowadays, particularly for hybrids, is in short Mm -hmm. supply. Thus, hybrids are short supply. So if I wanted to get a non-hybrid car, it's actually pretty easy go. If you want an actual hybrid car, though, right now, and I'm just kind of like, okay, well, if I can't get a hybrid, I'm kind of, like, torn. Like, do I get another car I'd really like that's not a hybrid? Or do I just say, you know... I do believe in the future of this planet. So I'm going to just go get a cheap car that you know, so gets good gas mileage, but that I can trade in when hybrids become available again. So other than that, honestly, it's fun. I just, I started buying work clothes again since, you know, everybody's back mm-hmm. in the office now and I bought makeup and you see, I start, I tried out a new lipstick today that is Denise It's approved, gorgeous on you. So. Yes, thank you I love it and so it's kind of like oh yeah life's coming back now you know although I will miss you know being able to go days without putting on a bra you know it's okay
0: <laughs> yeah that that's good I mean we're my girls are about to finish off school for the school year okay. it ends on Thursday I'm kind of sad
1: because <laughs> <laughs> they're coming home full-time then right
0: Yeah, but I mean, they were home so much for the school year. I mean, Mm -hmm. if it had been like a full school year and they had been gone, I mean, I don't think I would be feeling as sad, but we had to um, isolate because my daughter had COVID. Yeah. And so we were all here for like a month. Yeah. And then they get back for only two weeks. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm so sorry. So that's, I think that's where part of that is where I'm like, I just got my life back where I can get stuff done during the day and now it's going to go away. I'm so but that's okay. Sorry. My kids have some fun summer plans with mm-hmm. their grandparents. They're going to be going on a trip to the national parks out west. They get to go see Yellowstone and that's gonna be Arches lovely. National Park.
1: Oh, I'm so jealous.
0: I'm jealous. I want to go. And it's so funny. I told that to my dad because he's the, he and my mom are the ones doing the trip with them and I'm like, "Oh, I want to go." He goes, "Really?" I knew what he was saying, and I'm like, "Well, yeah, really, but I'm not." Is he was afraid I was going to try to insert myself on this Uh grandparent-grandchild adventure? Uh And I'm like, "I'm not going to do that to you."
1: Oh, you're such a good. I'm going.
0: I'm going to enjoy the time I have myself. I'm just a little jealous that they get to see these places before I do.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that's so cool! They're doing that though. Yeah. So that's really
0: exciting. Today I'm going on a date. That's what we call them at home with my youngest. Oh, nice. So we, because of COVID, we kind of just kind of canceled that for a while. But what we generally do is one month, I take the girls out for some one-on-one time. And so I do it one month and the next month, it's my husband. Uh So we kind of rotate it. And my poor youngest didn't get her date from April with me because of the COVID and the isolation and just... So now I have a moment. So I'm going to take her out for some lunch. And, and she goes, and dessert? She wants ice cream. Oh. She always wants ice cream. I'm like, of course, we'll get you some ice cream. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, you have to have ice cream. So she's excited. That's
1: going to be so fun.
0: So, so that's cool. what my family does. I mean, I try to give them that one-on-one time as long as I can. Mm-hmm. We'll see. And my oldest is now a tween. So we'll see how long that lasts with her.
1: Oh my, I don't know if you keep sticking ice cream in there. It might last quite a long time.
0: I think, I mean, we're going to keep trying it with her. Mm -hmm. Keep doing it. Like, mm, You get to pick to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. She likes to pick things like going bowling or seeing a movie.
1: Oh, that's
0: nice. And that hasn't been as able to do because of covid but Mm -hmm. we'll get back into that here soon because we are all except for my girls we're all vaccinated in my house
1: yay yay
0: i know you're all that oh yeah so i'm
1: so ready to take on the world right now
0: i'm like oh my gosh i can do stuff and my husband and i have weekend plans when my (gasps) girls are gone on their trip no yes Have you been watching or reading or listening to anything in particular? So I've had,
1: so of course the Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you follow Mm -hmm. that on
0: Hulu. I don't. I read the book, but I haven't been able, I couldn't get into the show.
1: So I tell you, the only reason I got into the show is because I didn't even start watching it until we had pandemic lockdown. And then Mm -hmm. I watched three seasons in a row, felt devastated for humanity, thought, you know, fell into a bit of a depression, was like, I need to not. Like binge watch this kind of stuff. But the fourth season came out, and so I I've gone ahead and watched the fourth season. The fourth season, there was one episode I didn't watch because there's a lot of Reiki Torture stuff. Skipping that episode though, it's a lot more hopeful. And it's it just I have to tell you that it is it's gritty, it's dire. It's difficult, but yes, I, I, that's kind of what I've been into along with, um, what is it? The Great Baking Challenge. It's the new one on the food yeah. network. Cause that's like total opposite. It's cheery. How about you?
0: <laughs> you know, I, I read the book and it was good and I tried to watch the series, but I just, I couldn't go there. It was, it's like, it, it was easier for me to read the book than it is to watch it on the screen oh, yeah. type of thing. Um, I've started, so I'm watching two different things right now, kind of, I'm, I'm a Marvel Cinematic Universe type of geek. Uh-huh. I like that stuff. So I'm actually trying to watch all the movies and TV shows in order. Of oh, the my gosh.
1: Oh, my. Well, you have been so, doing that for a few years.
0: Well, yeah. It'll take some time. I just finished Iron Man, Iron Man 2. I mean, I've seen all this stuff before. It's just I haven't seen it all in order. Uh-huh. So I just finished Iron Man 2, so the next is up is Thor. So we got that. But I've also just started on Netflix, uh, Shadow and Bone.
1: Oh, I've heard that's good.
0: It's good. I read the book. I haven't read the whole series yet. So some part of the movie is a little different. And then I realized what they're doing is they're putting in like future episodes of the book early in that backstory so it's like a consistent cohesive story instead of taking it like the book right so there's characters in it that i'm not recognizing going i don't remember that person in the book and then i realized because i went to look at the other books what they were about i'm like oh that's what they're doing so that's cool but like most anything i i like it for what it is but it's different from the book right i have a friend going she she liked the she says she likes the series better than the book
1: uh-huh.
0: but i it's missing some things in the series that I think are essential, but you know, you
1: know, that's I, I like them both. That's the hardest thing whenever they do a book adaptation is that the books can give you such a rich world with lots of different stories and lots of different intertwining, and in a TV show you really get one story and then anything mm-hmm. peripheral that supports that story, and so they have to make choices as they go right. along about okay, here's a really cool side story, a side adventure, a side quest, but it does it's not really relevant to the main point we're making and so it has to be cut and it's all yeah
0: oh we at some point will take a little bit of break with the podcast everybody um it won't be a long one but it'll probably be after some stuff so we are going to be transitioning to some mini sods. we're calling them mini sods because they're not gonna be an hour and a half to two hours like these are <laughs> and these are people that killers where it's harder to research their tree for whatever reason so i won't have as much on my end but Zelda will have plenty on hers. It's so fun. Yeah. And I'm already researched Theodore Duran, um, the demon of the Belfry, was what he was referred to as. I'm researching right now, Belle Gunness. Ooh. And honestly, her tree part is pretty much done, but she did have a sister. So I'm looking at her family. Oh, fun. Then I think we'll do John List. Do you know who he is, I have Zelda? no
1: idea who he is.
0: Ooh. He was a family annihilator. So he killed his whole family. I think it was... In, I can't remember what, when it happened. Six, late 60s, early 70s. He disappeared. Okay. And America's Most Wanted, it like, re- got a sculptor to make it him look like he would at an older age. Uh-huh. And he was found. <gasps> oh,
1: my gosh. Okay, this will be fun.
0: But I looked into his tree before, and I couldn't get very far. So I thought that would be a good one to do. And then I have a couple others I have to decide. But we'll do, like... About six of these for the summer, and then we might take a couple of weeks off. Okay. And um, so we can get a break, too.
1: <laughs> we are going to have a great summer, and I love this idea of the mini-episodes. You know, just mm-hmm. a little taste of crime.
0: Just. And when and we do talk to each other, it won't be as current, because we're going to probably recording a lot of this before Zelda does her move. So that way she can relax, get settled into her new house, and not have to worry about it. Yay!
1: And then you come visit me, because I'll have a real guest room.
0: I will come visit. With a real
1: bed not even like my luxurious air mattress. So,
0: but your air mattress is like awesome. It is,
1: isn't it? It's like the best air mattress, man.
0: I y'all, it, it's like as high as a bed. Mm-hmm. I have never seen an air mattress like that before. It's usually the ones you crawl onto on the fl- low on the floor. Mm-hmm. This one is not. It's so good. It's fancy.
1: I actually slept on it for 3 months when I was transitioning like homes and Ooh. places and i'm mm-hmm. like i i didn't miss having a real mattress because it was like mm-hmm. so comfy but um but a real bed will await you when you visit me in my new space and and i will be visit. so fun and we'll ride around in my new car if i ever buy one Woo!
0: So. <laughs> you will it'll you be will. awesome well it was great seeing you again and great talking about this I I was I, I've actually been done with this for a few days I was so excited
1: well this has been so much fun Denise and I can't wait yeah. till we get to talk to about Thomas Dorset
0: oh Theodore Durant
1: Theodore Durant well I'm glad I said that out loud so that you can tell me because otherwise <laughs> I'd be trying to find why can't I find this Dorset
0: guy <laughs> well he Theodore is he, he will probably be our first one up he is fascinating but his sister uh-huh was Maude Allen. And I think if you were anybody in a past life, uh huh, you were Maude Allen. Oh,
1: I want to find out all about her now.
0: And there's a little thing where, and I can't wait to go, but it talks about how she would sew all her own costumes and she would dance. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so Zelda.
1: Oh my God. Okay. So I'm going to go look this stuff up right now. And, okay, but it's been lovely chatting and okay. I hope you have a really good day.
0: And thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at murderousroots dot com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at murderousroots. com